I'm calling on the spirits of everyone who ever died in this house. If you're present, give us a sign. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, this is the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shan, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tejada. Let's go! Trev here on behalf of the Boo Crew with episode 38. We are joined by writer, director, producer, as well as the horror genre's unofficial documentarian and archivist. He also hosts the incredible postmortem podcast responsible for creating masters of horror for Showtime, Mick Garris. Find out what happens when you get a phone call from Steven Spielberg that changes your life. The adventure of working with the great Stephen King on more projects than any single director. His role as one of horror's most famous zombies, creating the film Hocus Pocus. Dig up his collection of corpses, among other truly amazing stories. We'll also give this thing a spin right here. Look out. This is Mick Garris, and you are hanging out with the Boo Crew. You'll be the talk of the neighborhood if you greet your party guests and your trick-or-treaters with this eerie scene. Wheel of the Dam, Wheel of the Dam, it's time to spin the wheel of the dam. Wheel of the Dam, Wheel of the Dam, it's time to spin the wheel of the dam. All right, it's another edition of the Wheel of the Dam. I'm Trevor. I'm Lauren. I'm Leah. I'm Austin. I'm Rachel. Tim couldn't make it this week. He's still on a secret Boo Crew mission. Here's what happened after we spun the wheel at the end of taping our previous episode. So basically we sit, we have this wheel, this prize wheel on the desk that Austin went and got, and we have different categories and different eras of horror films written on this wheel. We give it a spin, and that's what we end up talking about on the next edition of Wheel of the Damned. Here we go. Let me turn on its mic. The wheel has its own mic. Here we go. That was a good spin. Look at that. Yeah. What is it? I can't. Oh! oh. 70s. Nice. Nice. Woo! Oh, man. All right. Here we come. <laughs> and we're back. In our bell bottoms. <laughs> <laughs> Mustaches. <laughs> and ample pubic hair. Seventies. <laughs> <Yeah. 70s. laughs> All right. Okay. Wow, wow. <laughs> How much diet coke have you had? Who wants to go first? <laughs> Gosh, where's the fucking fair stick? You didn't oh, make yeah, 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 the fair, fair stick. stick. All right, I'm gonna do that this week. It's my project. All right. Do you want to? How about you? We've never gone first. Okay. Let's go first. All right. All right. Released August twenty seventh. 1971. Here's where we look around and see. Did someone pick this one too? <laughs> any ringing any Go bells? On. Okay. Directed by John D. Hancock. Nope. 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 Okay. All, All right. right. Starring Zara Lampert, Barton Hyman, Heyman. And Mary Claire Costello. Rod Serling used to travel doing lectures at colleges and universities in the 70s and would tell the students about this very film that was the most frightening he had ever seen. That film would be called... Let's Scare Jessica to Death. What? I don't don't know this movie. (laughs) Someone is trying to scare Jessica to death. Why have you been following me? Imagined fears? What do you want? Or real live terror? Your darkest thoughts are about to come alive. Let's scare Jessica to death. Ah! 
Friday at 8 on KST Washington. Okay, so Jessica has just been released from a mental institution after treatment from a nervous breakdown. And then her husband and her buy a rundown Victorian home, which of course Trevor's like, yes. (laughs) And farm in Connecticut to get away from New York. They bring their friend along to help fix up the place. When they get there, they run into this hippie drifter who's been squatting in the house. She joins a group all the while Jessica's plagued by visions and voices and the rest is horror history. Wow. <laughs> so this is one of those movies that become a cult film. It was very obscure and hard to track down. One you would hear about from other people that you had to find an experience. Friends would tell me this movie is the scariest movie I've ever seen. And I would run around to video stores, never be able to find it. Now with streaming, I suggest you go out and track it down because it's available. It's a beautiful, extremely psychological horror film. It literally whispers to you. (laughs) It makes you feel crazy. It gets into your head and question, much like Jessica herself, what's real and what's not. It's got a very artful presentation. Is very open to interpretation, stunningly creepy and unsettling scenes. Zara's performance is completely unhinged in the best way possible. It's not one shot that she is in that isn't disturbing. Half the stuff you swear she's improvising on the spot. It's very unpredictable. The late Walter Sear did the score for this alongside Orville Stober. And Walter was one of the first distribution partners of Robert Moog, created the Moog synthesizer. Walter is considered one of the pioneers of using the synth and was best known running a studio in New York up until around 2010, where people like Nora Jones and people like that would go to because it was one of the only all analog places. They rejected all digital stuff and, and Walter was running it up until his death around then. So his experimentation on the soundtrack jumps off the screen and is very much a precursor to Carpenter and Goblin. And the fans of that music are going to love the score. This was the first feature film for director John Hancock, and its success opened the door to Hollywood. He went on to make a movie with Robert De Niro and Michael Moriarty called Bang the Drum Slowly, and then he got offered the sequel to Jaws 2, but got fired due to his intention to deliver a much darker, sinister movie. Oh, that would be fun. I wonder what that would have been like. Yeah. Yeah, kind of bummed. It was supposed to have the the town be basically a ghost town. Just destroyed by everything that happened. Wow. Nice. The rundown Victorian house is the centerpiece of the film, and the house actually still exists to this day. Um, We bought it. Two bucks. (laughs) (laughs) It's a real life filming location, and it's in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, and it's abandoned. And as of last year, they were still looking for an owner to restore it before it crumbles into nothing. And Mm. guess what I bought you for your birthday? Not that Old house. Victorian house. Not we're going to go house. fix up. We're going to bring Austin and Rachel and Leo. We're all going to do the podcast out of the turret. Oh, it's wow. going like, to be like the monkeys. <laughs> we all live in a house together. <laughs> the sitcom version of the Boo Crew. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. That'd be fun. That'd be super fun. Next up. Rachel and I watched from 1979... The Brood. Oh, wow. A Brood. You can run. You can hide and hope they won't find you. But you won't escape. Once unleashed, The Brood 
will destroy anyone who gets in their way. David Cronenberg's Ultimate Experience in Inner Terror. Starring Oliver Reed and Samantha Egar. The Brood. They're waiting for you. So this is a Canadian film. It's a Canadian science fiction psychological horror film. And it's directed by David Cronenberg. Ah, yes. It is uh, streaming on Amazon. That's how we saw it. Stars Oliver Reed, Samantha Egar, Art Hindle, and Cynthia Hines was only eight at the time during this movie was made and it was made for 1.5 million canadian dollars and shot all around toronto have you guys seen it no No, i've not it's a good sort of entry-level cronenberg because it's a it's a like a straight horror movie so a quick synopsis it's about a divorced couple we follow the the father's the main protagonist and his five-year-old daughter the mother is in an institution going through this extreme form of psychoanalysis called psychoplasmics and Oliver Reed plays a really intense Dr. Raglan. The wife is played by Samantha Egger, both like high class British actors. And there's something weird going on with the daughter. So the mother gets visitation rights. It starts with the father going and collecting the daughter after the weekend. And he finds that she has some bruises on her and he starts confronting the doctor saying, you know, screw this. I, I'm going to take my daughter away. And he says, you can't. Her is part of her therapy. It, it would be really dangerous at the moment. And his whole therapy thing is about dealing with people's rage. We, it opens on a scene where he's dealing with the patient. And it's sort of like he does this like really intense role play. But it's Oliver Reed doing role play. So it's like super intense. Deep. It's deep. <laughs> <laughs> There's a series of like really creepy, weird things that happen. These unexplained deaths seemingly at the hand of demonic children that is happening with the father and the girl in their life. And then meanwhile, we see the mother going through her therapy. And these, so it's these two storylines that sort of work towards each other, towards this climactic ending that has this really intense, very Cronenberg-y payoff. So it has a lot of great tension. It's got a, got a lot of great style to it. The thing that about Cronenberg that I love so much is that it's sort of like crazy stories with like super sincere storytelling. Everyone's like really serious, but there's kind of like weird things that are happening. Yeah. So it creates this really unnerving tone. Mm-hmm. And it's like this confidence of storytelling. It's like he's one of those directors where you can watch like you could just watch an exchange between two actors. and You know who the director is, you know, like a Scorsese yeah. or Spielberg or something where you're watching. You're like, oh, I can tell who directed Cronenberg. But it's in a really creepy, uneasy way. Like in all his films are kind of like body horror. So this continues. This is like the beginning beginnings of his body horror where there's just weird body things happening, <laughs> like deformities or like weird horror things involves like bloody body parts. And his, it's wonderful. <laughs> his, third, his third feature and his first, I think this is like his first real breakthrough. After this is Scanners, Videodrome. I um, remember Videodrome, man. Yeah. Discovering that as a kid, yeah. <laughs> that's a, that was the first one I saw. That's yeah. a weird, that's a hard entry. Very weird, This yeah. is an easy entry point into Cronenberg for anyone who's not got into Cronenberg, you know, gone into that Cronenberg reverse. Did he do, he did Dead Ringers too, he right? He did. Another crazy yes. ass movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's a great one. Uh, and then Dead Zone and The Fly. Fly, yeah. You know, or his two, you know, those are probably the most well-known. Dead Zone, Fly, and, uh, and Dead Ringers. They may be Videodrome. Which Rick Baker worked on. No he, way. He was a big fan of The Brood. Oh, cool. Because um, all the effects, you know, 1979, everything's practical. Yeah. And it's like a lot of really weird stuff, but it's like super, pra- like all the body horror stuff, but it's really practical. The other thing that, that's really that's interesting about it is that it's about divorce and the trauma that happens as a result of divorce. 
he had just gone through a very ugly divorce. And apparently the story goes that his wife took their daughter and ran off to a California to join a cult. Okay, so he got on a nice. plane from Toronto, flew to California, grabbed the daughter and said, I'm taking her out of this cult and took her back to Toronto. During this time, actually the same year that the movie was made, Kramer versus Kramer, which is also a story about divorce and won the Academy Award, right. was also playing. And Cronenberg is um, famously known for saying that his film is more real about divorce. <laughs> But I don't know. In a horror way. And what's amazing about the girl, the, the, you know, she's eight playing five. She like, she witnesses some super traumatic things and she does trauma like for real. Like you see trauma in her eyes Ooh. and you, yeah, it's really intense, but it's like for real, it's not just a kid looking great. Like, you know, like, Oh no, that's not good. You see, she's got the thousand yard stare going huh. and it, oh, it just gets worse as for her as the story keeps going on. Makes everything worthwhile. Yeah, so yeah. To say, it pays off. Her, <laughs> it, to it totally pays off and yeah. then has a little bit of a cliffhanger potential sequel, but also thematically about what trauma does to children. It's another one of those things where it's in horror, but working on these like deeper themes of the human experience. Fun facts about the film. So Howard Shore, composer Howard Shore, this is his first film. But to build off of that, another fun fact, Howard Shore was the musical director from 1975 to 1979 of a little show called Saturday Night Live. You're kidding me. Oh. At the same time. So I guess he may have left Saturday Night Live to do this <clears throat> and break in as a break into do movie scores. Wow. It's Saturday Night Live. <laughs> <laughs> so the film was filmed in Toronto. As Austin had mentioned in the synopsis, there is a brood of uh, demonic children going around, and those children are actually played by little girls from a grade school gymnastic club <laughs> that <laughs> was part of the film. So wow. it was part of like, the local crew. <laughs> the first American trailer for the film was cut by Joe Dante. What was Joe Dante doing at the time? Had he done any, was Joe Dante Joe Dante yet? I don't think so. He was an editor. I, yeah. think, I think he was cutting Corman films at the time. Interesting. So whoever the distributor was, he, he cut the trailer. What a small little wow. horror world we have. <laughs> <laughs> the Brood. The Brood. Brings us to Mr. Leo. Well, well, well. Riding on the coattails of demonic children. Nineteen seventy. What an intro! <laughs> Probably the second most, or maybe it's tied with, with the, being the most cursed movie of them all. The Omen. Yay! Gregory Peck, Lee Remick, The Omen. No! If this is the truth, where does it end? <laughs> I have not seen The Omen. Oh, dude. It's just great. It's all for you, Trevor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So directed by uh, Richard Donner. A little name, you know, tossed around here and there. You don't matter over what Superman, Lethal Weapon, bunch of great movies in the 80s and 90s. But before all that, he was directing television, was offered this movie, The Omen. He took it. There's this great story where like he wanted Gregory Peck to star in it. Studios like, no, nah, not feeling it. He won the Oscar for Atticus Finch for To Kill a Mockingbird. Eh, the guy's old. He's, he's done. He's like, nope, I want this guy. So he casted Gregory Peck. He casted Lee Remick as his wife. And the star of the movie, Little Little Damien, Harvey Stevens. So a quick synopsis for this movie. An American ambassador to Great Britain and his wife adopt a baby boy after she has a stillborn child. 
Gregory Peck uh, plays the character Robert, who then secretly takes an adopted baby boy and passes it off to his wife as the actual child that was born. He took it from like this orphanage, like nun convent that was that offered a baby up to him. So she just keep passing it along like, hey, here's our son. Time to see him. Wait, so she never knew she had a stillborn? No. That's it's fucked up. Yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's, a, it's a pretty messed up like intro, you know, going on. After relocating to London, strange events and an ominous warning by a priest leads him to believe that the child is the Antichrist. So this movie's great. It's got some great... That's a great transition. I know. <laughs> Leo, Leo loves like demonic children movies. <laughs> With priests. Right? Dude, this kid is, is like the star. Yeah. You know, later, you know, I had to look at some like behind the scenes and making up because I'm like, how do they get this kid to give that look, that stare? How, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, he's, no, he's, it's crazy. He, like He's like your son's age, maybe younger. God, don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, this kid, I mean, this movie has some some great horror scenes to elements to it. You know, there's a memorable scene. He's in the tricycle, like running around in circles. And it's a great shot of that. Cause the camera is like following this tricycle. The kid just tricycles his way down the hallway and he goes right for the mom who's, who's standing. I think she's hanging a plant or something on this like desk. And he rams into the desk and then she knocks over the fishbowl. Fishbowl goes crashing to the ground on the first floor. And then she goes following that. And it's really a horrifying scene. And, and if you're watching this, you're like, how is this filmed? Because the camera follows her, you know, all the way down to the fall. And it's later revealed that they did some cr- clever trickery, that they filmed it with her standing upright using a dolly and a wall as the floor. Oh. So it's like they were, they were wheeling her backwards into the, into the wall. Oh, but a really nice. cool effect. He shot it like 120 frames a second, whatever it was. And it looks at the slow motion fall. And she hits the ground. She, she rotates her body at the same time. So she gets injured in the hospital or whatever. There's a great decapitation scene in the movie too, which you don't expect or see coming. The way he shot it, it was in such a slow motion that audiences apparently when that scene took place would cringe and look away. But the scene was so slow that the head was still floating in the air. <laughs> when people would look back up the screen. We <laughs> <laughs> so made like a shocking moment. <laughs> but yeah, this movie is, is very well shot. And here's some clever, fun facts about it. Gregory Peck took the role after being persuaded, but also because in his real life, his son committed suicide. So he kind of felt this conflicted guilt about that. So he agreed to do this movie. Harvey Stevens, who plays Damien, was chosen because when they did auditions, Richard Donner asked the kids, hey, I want you to come at me. Come on, come at me. And the kid came at him, clawed his face, and punched him in his balls. <laughs> and he was like, holy shit. He was like catching his breath. He goes, that's Damien. His, so they had like, they like dyed his head black or whatever. And, and, and he, became, he became the kid, you know? The score is also important because not only is there eerie great music throughout the film, but it won the Oscar. Jerry Goldsmith's first Oscar. Oh, wow. He was like nominated for like seven times and he goes out there year after year to the Oscars and never wins. He didn't want to go this one year and, and they told him, you know, you got to go. You got to go. And he did and he won. So he finally won his first Oscar and it's for this movie. Aside from that, there's a great baboon scene. There's some like weird animal stuff going on in this movie. There's, there's Rottweilers. There's a baboon scene at the, at the uh, zoo. The baboon's go absolutely nuts in one scene and you're and i was trying to th- figure it out because you know, this is back before you know cg and all that stuff and i was like how did they get that effect you know because they look like they were really there in front of the car on top of the car and all that and they, and they were so what they did is they took the baby baboon into the car well the baboons did not react they're like eh, whatever they didn't care it was eating bananas you know <laughs> but the second they took the leader baboon into the car all of them went nuts 
like into a frenzy he started ta- like humping attacking the car and wanting to like break the get in and all that so that's when they were like you know that's it that's the shot get it you know cut so it was really crazy that it's like you know they learned something new they're like oh let's take the leader see what happens and sure enough the whole tribe went crazy there's a great documentary out there it's kind of hard to find i thought it was called like backstory on the omen or something like that but there's a story where the 20th century fox studios were not doing well at the time i don't know if they're going to go, go under soon but you know it was pretty bad for them financially so they took a gamble with this movie with the insistence of gregory peck and alan ladd jr you know coming to an agreement like yeah we gotta make this movie gotta make it gotta make it and then eventually the movie gets released it doesn't do that well it's just like kind of like a slow burn you know after word of mouth next thing you know it becomes like this huge hit so they credit this movie to actually saving star wars it saved 20th century fox and it helped finance star wars because when did this come out 76 76 wow how can you forget damien for you damien <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of by the way the last thing about damien the way he got those because the, the camera does these close-up shots on damien to show the transference of evil the presence of evil the way they got damien to react and how to give that famous smile that famous smirk is richard donner would go up to him and tell him kid don't you dare laugh kid don't you dare don't give me that la- you better not laugh and the kid would like slowly start smiling <laughs> if you haven't seen it check it out the omen 1976 welcome to high school hell i'm your host boris karloff jr <laughs> Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is someone very, very special. A legendary creator who has assumed the roles of producer, director, screenwriter, novelist of some of the most influential and celebrated works in genre. Trusted and hired by Steven Spielberg to write and edit on the beloved series Amazing Stories. He then went on to orchestrate Nightmares for Freddy, Fodder for the Crypt Keeper, even some dark fibs for a few Pretty Little Liars. Wrote 1987's classic Batteries Not Included for Amblin, sequels for The Fly, Critters, and Psycho. This is the man responsible for arguably one of the most important gateway horror comedies in the last two decades, 1993's Hocus Pocus. He has become the man Stephen King goes to to be the architect of his nightmarish and whimsical worlds when it comes to putting those impossible and visceral images and stories onto the screen. 1992's Sleepwalkers, the Stand miniseries, one of the most highly rated of all time. The Shining miniseries, Quicksilver Highway, Riding the Bullet, and desperation. He created the hugely successful anthology Masters of Horror for Showtime and gave the greatest rogues and renegades a creative safe haven by taking away all restraints and limitations. Our guest this week is truly one of us in every sense of the word. He is the creator we all strive to be and the embodiment of the fans we all are. He's not only an essential part of horror's lifeblood, he celebrates it more than anyone has dared to, working in or outside the genre. He's become horror's unofficial archivist and documentarian through his post-mortem project for FearNet, now a successful podcast where he interviews our icons and heroes with a humble unawareness that he himself is as iconic as it gets. We are honored to welcome Mick Garris. Google gobble. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's, it's a real trip. It's an having amazing you here, place. Man. Thank you so Fantastic. much, man. It's a real honor. So we start where we always do. Take us back to the first moment you had with horror. Son of Kong. I, I was oh. one of four kids. My parents, for some reason, well, my mother had seen King Kong when she was very young, like three years old in a movie theater and it scared the shit out of her. <laughs> so, uh, you know, she peed in her dad's lap, but 
when Son of Kong was coming on, they wanted it to be a very nutritious family experience. And so the four kids were together with both parents. And for some reason, I remember we had a big RCA TV or a Zenith, and then on top of it, a small TV. And for some reason, we had them both turned on, and Son of Kong was on, and so we were all together in a nice, encouraging family atmosphere. <laughs> well, it turns out it's kind of a comedy. Right. right. Uh, yeah. Although it's got one of the saddest endings of all the genre films. But that was my first time I saw a stop-motion animated giant ape, and it unlocked something in me that I was not aware of before, and then I sought out and saw the universal classics and all the, you know, I, I'm a monster kid. I was born in the fifties. And so it was uh, an eye-opening experience because you'd see it on television all the time, but no DVRs or anything. You'd mark the TV guide for a movie coming on at 3 a.m. and try and wake up at 3 o'clock <laughs> and fall asleep at 3.05. Right, right. <clears throat> so that was that was my entry drug. Talk about some of those other really impactful horror films that you ended up discovering on your own. Well, it's kind of rote these days, uh, you know, to have fallen in love with the Universal Classics, but also the Lugosi and Karloff collaborations, mm. you know, the Black Cat is yeah. really twisted and perverse in a way that you would not expect in the 30s because the Hayes Code came into practice by then and that was censoring all of the movie studios output in all genres but this was really you know there's skinning and human skinning and things like that it's very dark and twisted but a lot of those things really had a big effect on me bride of frankenstein was my favorite of the universal mm. yeah, monster yeah. classics <laughs> but even junk that was on channel 11 rather than channel 5 <laughs> uh, the, the four skulls of jonathan drake you know and the tabanga movie and you know there were a lot of things that played in theaters that that could never get there now because there's so much available at your fingertips everywhere. But at that time, the only way you could see movies was in a theater and then many years later on television. Was there a particular film that helped you make that transition into working in the genre or something that made you go, you know, this is, I'm going to do this? I started writing short stories at about 12. Okay. My biggest influence aside from the horror stuff was Ray Bradbury and a lot of his work was horrific, like short stories like The Small Assassin, which actually he regretted writing because it was so grim about a baby who could kill with a scalpel. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the Martian Chronicles and Fahrenheit 451, all of those right. things, it branded me. And at 12 years old, I started seriously writing fiction and short stories and the like. Everything had an effect on me, but the big one was Psycho. You know, I saw it at the drive-in. And again, it was the parents and four kids in a 1957 Chevy station wagon at the Reseda <laughs> Drive-In in, in the Valley. Oh, oh nice. Because uh, I am a native Angelino. I was born and raised here. Hey, so am I. Yay! Yay. Lauren, Me too. too. Yay. Yay. Me too. Yay. All right. <laughs> Four out of six. <laughs> exactly. Canada here. <laughs> oh, it'll do. <laughs> well, they shoot everything in Vancouver now, so uh, I've shot more there than anywhere else. <laughs> I, I think that's true. I've shot more in Vancouver than anywhere else. Oh, wow. Were yeah. your parents expecting, you know, Son of Kong was obviously not the horror movie that your mother was maybe expecting based Definitely on not. King of Kong. Yeah. <laughs> Going to Psycho, were expectations lower? Because Psycho was a whole new thing. No one knew what to expect. Yeah, that was a whole new thing. But I think it was well known by the time we saw okay. it. It might have been the first couple of weeks or something. Well, it was in the drive-in, so it probably was in the hard tops first. Gotcha. And then the Ozoners, as Joe right. Bob would call it. <laughs> how did that movie play out in the uh, drive-in? It uh, was amazing. I, that was how I 
I saw most of my movies as a kid because, you know, we did not have much money. We couldn't afford to go to the first run movie theaters. Right. And, the like. and that was kind of the way it was done in the 60s when I was a kid was you go to the movies at the drive-in if oh. you're a family and uh, bring your six pack of bubble up and pop your own popcorn <laughs> and all that. But it was phenomenal. In those days, horror movies were thought of as for kids and Psycho was something entirely different. And nobody knew 30 years later, you know, after Psycho was made, I would make Psycho 4. <laughs> but, but again, it really left its welts on me. You know, it was really a powerful movie. And I don't think anybody anticipated how intense it was or they wouldn't have brought children who were under 10 <laughs> to, to see this. It was the most memorable time, and I remember very well, in the back of the, of the uh, station wagon was... Mrs. Bates, Mrs. Bates, and the hand on the shoulder and turning around and there's her desiccated corpse. And we used to do that to my little sister constantly. <laughs> oh, no. Dee Dee, Mrs. Bates, Mrs. Bates. <laughs> so it was great. It was great. But that, that movie really was more influential than, than I even realized at the time. I always was interested in the dark. I was fascinated by that. And that was something I'd never seen it set in the real world, you know, in your neighborhood with real people that don't come from the Carpathian Mountains or another planet or giant insects or things right. like that. That really had an impact on me. And, and to this day, that's the kind of horror that has its biggest effect on me. I love monster movies and the like, but the ones that really get me are the ones that feel like they could happen. Yeah, wow. definitely. Yeah, well, that explains your Stephen King connection. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, King seems to have that sort of philosophy in his writing. And even when it does go fantastical, it's so rooted in believable characters and places. And, you know, he eats at the places we eat. He right. shops mm -hmm. at the places we shop. And despite his being the most successful author in history, he lives a life like the rest of us. Yeah, that's I think how the key to him getting under your skin too. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got a voice that feels genuine. You know, you oh, yeah. you read it and it it draws you in. It's like having a conversation with somebody, and it yeah. draws characters that we all know. Exactly, yeah. and we are. Yeah, exactly. You know, I often say that his books aren't about the monster in the closet. It's about the people who live in the house that has the closet with right. the monster. Yeah, that's, right. yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those novels are timeless. You go back to you know Carrie in the first that's one, still relevant today completely I mean, maybe bullying's online in, right. you know but it's still yeah. it's still here it is and it's speaking about things that are still important to us now right mm -hmm. and need addressing now but not clubbing us over the head with it just it's an entertainment that actually has a lot of social comment to it as well where were you in your career when you got that first big break from steven spielberg and actually being able to write on amazing stories i was doing publicity I was doing making of documentaries that I'd hire myself for because I was cheaper. I was working for a PR company. I had been doing my Z channel interview show, things like that. Suddenly I got a call at home and I was living in a little house on Camarillo street in North Hollywood. And there was a call, uh, Steven Spielberg calling for Mick Garris. Um, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> wow. And so they put me on hold and I, Cynthia, Cynthia, <laughs> my wife, you're like, Steven <laughs> and then he came on and, and asked me if I would come in and meet with them and write one of the episodes. And I learned years later that I was the first person hired to write an episode. He had written all the storylines for the first season, 22 stories. There were like things from a sentence or a paragraph to a couple of pages. And then he gave me one to look at. 
called the main attraction. It was called the Magnet Kid at that time. They asked me to take a crack at it, and I wrote it in three days and came back. And they loved it and asked me to do another one right away. And a day and a half in, they called me before I finished it and said, would you come on and be the story editor for the series? And I was literally on food stamps at the time. So my own amazing story was that call from Steven. Wow. Wow. How did he find you? He had been on my Z Channel show. Okay. And I did publicity on E.T. and Poltergeist. I was on the set of Poltergeist and E.T. in the day. They had read a script that an agent I had finally finagled had gotten to them. And I was doing the making of the Goonies at the time, the first day of shooting the Goonies up in Astoria, Oregon. And I was interviewing Steven and we're setting up the lights and the like. And uh, he said, well, you must do a lot of these. And I, very young and naive saying, well, I am, but I'm trying to do less of that. I'm trying to make a go of it as a writer. Not the sort of thing you want to say to Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> but his response was, oh, really? We're looking for writers for this series I'm doing called Amazing Story. At that time, we we're having that conversation in Astoria, Oregon. His readers were reading a script I had written called Uncle Willie. And writing coverage for it, and the last line of the coverage was, hire this man. Oh, wow. <laughs> so so nice. when he man. went back to L.A., and I went back to L.A., like within a couple of weeks, I got a call. And that was that momentous call, and I've been working ever since. Wow, that's amazing. Wow, that's amazing. So, that like I said, amazing story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that show was on, what, 84, 85? 85, 86, 87. It was a two-season commitment, even though it was not successful. They were committed to airing 44 shows. But it, was it such started a perfect, with a bang and then kind of slipped in. Such a perfect time for that. You had a Back to the Future was in theaters and, and right. all that time. Had, yeah. It was a perfect time for that TV show. It really yeah, was. Yeah. But what killed it, I think, was what... I loved about it is it was completely different every week. Sometimes there was an animated episode. There would be a family fantasy. There would be something really an intense thriller, a very wide range. There was no host. So you never knew what you were going to get. To me, that's really good news. But to the network television audience, that was not particularly good news. And the ratings kind of slid. And honestly, a third of them were great. A third of them were okay. Third of them, not really. <laughs> With all that stuff going on in every episode, though, it must have been kind of a production nightmare as well, wouldn't it? It would be it really was, hard to. Well, it's a very expensive show, but they knew what they were getting. They got Steven Spielberg and they had episodes directed by Bob Zemeckis and Martin Scorsese mm-hmm. and Clint Eastwood, and all <laughs> yeah. of these people. So, you know, it was worth it to them. Did that lead directly into Freddy's Nightmares, Tales from the Crypt? Was it kind of... It was a little earlier. It did lead to writing. Well, Hocus Pocus was written eight years before it was made. Oh, it was. So there were 11 other writers on it after me. Oh, so Uh, were you the first person who... I was the first writer on it. Well, David Kirshner, the producer, came up with the idea. And then he and I worked on the the storyline. And then I wrote the first two or three drafts. And then it went into other hands when uh, I started doing other work. When it was in your hands, Mm. did you envision the strong musical element to it as well? No. The I Put a Spell on You was put into it later on. That's in large part because of Kenny Ortega being Mm. a music video director, a choreographer, had done, you know, really spectacular stuff in that way. It turned into a much more lighthearted kind of horror movie, like you said, an entry film. Yeah, right. Uh, that's a show. That's yeah. the one we show our kids when we want to get exactly. them into horror. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas right. a lot of parents show Psycho. 
<laughs> some that I don't want I guess we're doing it wrong. <laughs> well, it depends on if you want to turn, want them to turn out more like you or like me. <laughs> I think a little of both. <laughs> Fair enough. What would the original idea for Hocus Pocus, how much more sinister did it get? It was as darker. To, yeah. It was darker. But, you know, the darkness is there, but there's kind of a bright light on it. Yes. You know, Billy Butcher, bad Billy Butcherson, was not a pratfall zombie. He was the living dead. And there was humor to it, but not nearly as broad and as and as slapsticky and comedic as it was. Obviously, they made the right choice because even though when it came out, it was not particularly successful. Now, if I were wearing a T-shirt that said, I wrote Hocus Pocus, you know, and walked down the street, every female from five to 80 would say, that's my favorite movie. Yeah. You nailed that. Yeah, so I don't say, yeah, you should have seen my dress. I just say, thank you very much. I would have liked to see your version as well. Yeah. Because I love the version now. I'm, I, I just love it. But Settle I for that. <laughs> You'll be much happier. If yeah. you, if I'm, really, you I'm, really, I'm really curious how much of your version made it to the final cut. Enough for me to get three credits in the in the opening titles. Oh, there so we go. The, substantially, the structure, the characters, all of that stuff. But it went through lots of different changes. It became much more family friendly. We knew we were making it for Disney, and the original title was actually Disney's Halloween House. Right. So we knew we were making a family film. But remember... Bambi's mother burned to a crisp. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of those Disney yeah. movies. Yeah. I lots mean, of tragedy. This house, we, we know. Yes. <laughs> I, I've heard so many like rumors about a second one being made. If you could write a second one, what would you write about? Well, it's being written. So it is. It is. Okay, and it's I being made for uh, Freeform and ABC. Wow. So it's going to be a, a television movie with none of the original actors. Right. So oh. far as I know, but I'm not involved at this point anyway. I would love to be just because you feel like it's part of your family when, especially when it becomes successful 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you listening to me? <laughs> no, David Kirshner is producing the new one as well. And he's really great. That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. So I want to know, what did you keep from Hocus Pocus? Do you have anything? The only time I was on the set was the very first day of shooting. So what I kept from Hocus Pocus was some really nice memories. <laughs> <laughs> I have no problem. I had nothing to do with once it went into production. I was the first writer and David invited me to the set and met Kenny Ortega and the cast and all. And it was really fantastic and beautiful. But I, I really was not involved in the production of the movie beyond the creation of the script. Wow, like a spell book? Eight years before. <laughs> <laughs> Lord, Lord, but after a spell book, so. like, <laughs> Look out. Have, I do have book. But it's a replica and it's perfect. It's amazing. Yeah. But it was not from the movie. Somebody else made it and it's perfect. And in fact, the eye follows you when you walk. You do. I think you can find it. Okay, I think there's an it. Etsy. Are you much of a collector yourself? Do you end up scrounging sets from movies you worked on if or anything? If I did like that, that, I'd stuff? be broke. You yeah. Know? <laughs> uh, you know, I make a good living. and <laughs> It is a slippery slope. But it definitely is. I like to keep some things. I have the corpse of Mother from Psycho 4 in oh, my office. Oh, that's wow. great. Somebody that's walks in. There. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, uh, the window is open to the street. And there were neighbors who 
the mother-in-law came to visit and was staying there. She called the police oh because she saw a corpse sitting oh. in my office. Oh, no. And they came out and they had a very good laugh. That's when you know you're doing it right. That's exactly. right. Exactly. <laughs> well, I do have some things from the movies, but uh, I have a couple of the corpses from the stand. and So mostly the bodies. <laughs> corpse bodies, heads, little things, you know, in desperation. There are the cantas, which are... These little sculptures that are mystical rock uh, stone sculptures and the like. I have a few of those and a skull from Desperation. I have a couple of the critters from Critters 2. Oh, oh that's cool. Oh, those, nice. are, those are value. Like when those Mostly pop up rotten. on auctions now, yeah. it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. If they're the real ones, they've rotted by now. Except yeah. I have one at Mopop up in Seattle, the Museum of Pop Art. Until recently, my thriller costume was there. I have my thriller costume, and my wife Cynthia has her thriller costume from doing that. They're the only ones that exist, because when it was finished shooting, Michael Jackson said, I want them all destroyed. And so... The costume ran away. person, said, yeah, <laughs> got on the so bus. The costume person said they're destroying them. So if you want them, you better take them. So we still have those. That's amazing. That's cool. Why wanna, did he want them destroyed? I don't know. Maybe because of collectors. Maybe because of you know, just like you destroy the dollhouses in Hereditary as part of the movie. But um, I don't know. An amazing experience to have been a zombie and thriller. I wanted oh. to know. Oh, we got to talk about that. How the hell did that happen? <laughs> you and your wife. Yeah. Well, John Landis and I have been good friends for many years. And we were friends then. And Rick Baker, also good friends, right. uh, me and my wife. And so when they were doing it, they said, do you want to be a zombie in this? And yeah. Nah, <laughs> of course I do. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't know that much about Michael's music other than how successful it was. I was much more into more obscure kinds of music. But I became a big fan of that music once I was a part of Thriller, the biggest music video in history. Yeah. And it was an amazing experience and Landis was a lot of fun to work with. And Rick Baker had all of the best makeup effects guys working in Hollywood there and each one would be working on a different uh, cast member and making themselves up. All of the makeup artists are zombies in there as well. But there are three levels of zombie in Thriller. There's the background zombies, which were pretty simple masks and the like, and dancer zombies, which were more sophisticated but had to stand up to dancing and sweating and all of that. Sure. And then the close-up zombies, which were the most detailed, and that's what I was. Oh, so oh, you, wow. can, you can pick yourself up. If we oh, watch the video, yeah. you could see you. Yeah, when Michael breaks into the house, Cynthia's on his over his left shoulder, oh, yeah. I'm over his right. Oh, wow. And I'm the last one who comes up out of the ground and hears what this is an audio show, but everyone in the room here can see. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. I've aged into my part. That I is no amazing. I don't need the hair <laughs> How long I, were you in the makeup chair for that? Three hours on, one hour off. Oh, jeez. <sighs> yeah. Wow. Well, I want to circle back to Michael Jackson in a bit, but to do that, I want to talk about getting involved with Stephen King. And I know that it was after he saw the remarkable job he did on Cycle 4 when you first started working with him that film has an incredible cast Anthony Perkins of course and Henry Thomas Olivia Hussey oh she's fantastic she's great I mean going back to Romeo and Juliet yeah and then uh, Black Christmas Black Christmas yeah, she's yeah. beautiful very memorable yeah. yeah she's still just fantastic what was it about that that resonated with Stephen well 
Sleepwalkers was also about a boy and his mother. <laughs> and, True. Uh, <laughs> it seemed to be my area of expertise, but don't tell my mom. <laughs> I think that had something to do with, but he had director approval and there were two directors being pitched to him. I had met with the studio and they liked me and thought I would be right for the movie and said, you know, we're sure this is going to work out, but one of the agents we're close to has a client that we have to meet with this client because of our relationship with him. And, you know, we just have to do it as a matter of our job. So they hired him and it really didn't work out. He started rewriting it far away from what King had written. And they ended up ending their relationship with him. And they called me to come and have lunch and talk about it. What I didn't know is they had hired me at that lunch and moved me into the office that day. Wow. So my job was to move it back to what King had written and keep the essence of what he did. So I did a few things that the studio wanted and the like with the script, but it went back to what Steve had written. Sorry for the Steve thing. <laughs> if you know him, that's what you call it. So you went on and did Sleepwalkers. Yes. Which is it's so awesome. Got horrible reviews, but it was the number one movie when it opened. <laughs> we get our revenge somehow. <laughs> I was curious about that movie. How did you guys do the disappearing car segments? That was a really cool effect. It was yeah. the beginning of morphing. And T2 was in production at the same time we were. They were in post-production when we were in production. And they were the first ones in a studio movie to do Stan Winston, right? Uh, Right. Stan Winston and the water weenie was in in, (laughs) in T2. At the same time, they were doing the black and white video that John Landis directed with Michael Jackson that also morphs from face to face. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we used motion control, which is now incredibly archaic and it's agonizingly slow. You put up a track that is motorized and computerized. You program in how long it takes to do it, and then you repeat it with different things being placed in. You have one car in place, you have no car in place, then the other car in place, yeah. and then the computer-controlled camera move tracks it each time, and then in post-production, you can manipulate the images however you like. You can do it without motion control now, but in those days, it was... In the early 90s, uh, it was, you know, okay, it'll take four hours to do this. No, double it, double it again. <laughs> motion control oh, was man. just agonizingly slow. <laughs> no. And you can probably get a motion control rig that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars in those days, probably for about 89 bucks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Digital uh, visual effects have become so much more sophisticated. Oh, it's insane. The practical effects in that in Sleepwalkers are great. That was, I think, yeah, Alterian, who was doing yeah. all the, yeah, 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 yeah worked on the, Return of the Living Dead. And, really big heads, though. <laughs> Those <laughs> creatures have very big heads because there's remote control machinery in there. That is as so the actors cool. are wearing them. Yeah. Jeez. Was some of that shot on the WB lot? Where was that? A little bit of it was, yeah. Okay. The exteriors of the house were yeah. the old Walton's house. Okay. On the back lot at Warner Brothers. It's not there anymore. Mm. Mostly the stage work was was done on the Sony lot. Sony had only recently bought Columbia Pictures at that time. Mm. Then there was location stuff out in Newberry Park and, uh, you know, out uh, west side of the San Fernando Valley. Right. Now, if anyone is listening who hasn't seen The Sleepwalkers, there's some great cameos, probably some of the best I've seen, (laughs) including a scene where Stephen King plays a cameo, talks to both Toby Hooper and Clive Barker in the same scene. (laughs) And John Landis and Joe Dante all make appearances in that. Was that part of your vision? Did you want that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, directors don't work together. 
So True. you never oh, really yeah. know. Everybody has a different way of working, but you don't work with them. John Landis was the one who first started doing cameos of a lot of directors in his movies. And I was in The Stupids and I was in Thriller and he was in The Stand and he was in, well, in Sleepwalkers first. It's fun to have friends on the set. And King and Barker had never met, and King kind of made Clive's career with a quote that he put out on his first books. I have seen the future of horror, and his name is Clive Barker. Yeah. Oh, yeah. As, as Stephen King does, right? Yes. That's yeah. blessing. I remember that clear yeah. as day. Yeah. So I wanted, him, I wanted them to meet, and I'd been working with Clive, who was just the loveliest guy in the world. And they met on the set there. That morning, I broke my tooth on my morning granola and had to go down and get a temporary crown before King got there for the cameo. And he was only there for two hours. And, and I hadn't met him face to face yet. Really? Oh, wow. We've been talking on the phone because he lives in Maine and we were right. shooting in Los Angeles. So not Indiana, as you can tell, because there are mountains in our <laughs> in our Travis, Indiana. It really was something that I thought, and I, it was justified later on opening night when I went to the Chinese theater to a show, sold out show where the goobble gobble crowd, the ones of us, <laughs> you know, when those scenes come on, they go, thank you here. That's Stephen King. That's Clive Parker. That's Toby <laughs> and, and it's a wonderful feeling to feel like you're in on it, you know, that you're a part of the movie because you recognize those people. Mm -hmm. And the great unwashed, the hoi polloi, have no idea what you're with. <laughs> <laughs> so it may be distracting in a way, but in fact, the beginning of that scene where King comes in and then it's Clive and then it's Toby and then it goes to the sheriff talking to Machinamic. You could cut that shot off and no one would notice, but it was so nice to just be able to have a, a fan thing because I'm a fan as much as I am a filmmaker. And if I had seen that, I would go, yeah, it's there. There's Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just, it was, it was for the fans. You've worked quite a lot with the composer, Nicholas Pike. Yes. What yeah. do you find about his work that complements yours so well? I love that he can do orchestral. In fact, after Michael Jackson, I introduced him to Michael Jackson for Ghosts, and he did a 90-piece orchestra for that. He did a 60-piece orchestra for Sleepwalkers. And in Sleepwalkers and in Critters 2, one of my favorite themes is Norman Rockwell Goes to Hell. And both of those <laughs> movies are made with that in mind. And the music is kind of Norman Rockwell-esque or Copeland-esque, if you will. And there is a scope and an emotional range. You have a movie with Critters too, and there are scenes that are heart-rending in it that you don't expect from a movie like Critters right. too. But that music really helps embroider the emotional context and brings it to life in that way. Everybody I've introduced Nicholas to has worked with him. <laughs> but he can do the same thing by himself, doing samples and, uh, and all, which is almost everything non-studios do these days. You rarely get an acoustic orchestra scoring films other than big studio movies these days because you can emulate them pretty well. And Nicholas is really good at that. And I, I love working with him. That brings me to working again with Michael Jackson. Like you mm -hmm. said, he had him working in 1996. Michael Jackson has this idea for a music video, gets you, Stephen King, <laughs> to write it together. Stan Winston directs it, earns, I believe, a world record for the longest music videos, what I've read. Well, it's certainly the most expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I was originally the director on that. Oh, and we shot for two weeks and never got to the music yet because Michael worked 
the way that Michael worked. And as long as it took, and he started paying. Originally, that was going to be a short film, a video to promote Adam's Family Values, the sequel to the Adam's Family movie. And it was going to be the end song for Adam's Family Values. And then the scandal with Michael happened and he became radioactive. And, you know, it's whatever. I don't know what happened and what didn't happen. Nobody knows except the people involved. But um, we were shooting and then he was not there. It turned out that he had left the country because of the legal issues going on. And so it shut down for three years. And then when it came back on, we were going to do it three years later. And even during that three years, I'd get calls from Michael, you know, Mick, it's going to be great. You're going to love it. It's going to be the most fantastic thing. <laughs> and it was exciting to do it and all, but The Shining was coming up and there's a schedule for that. And Michael's schedule isn't like anybody else's schedule. It's very flexible. And so as it's getting closer and closer, you say, well, we have to delay, but it's going to, and I have to do this, Michael, I'm doing The Shining. So I suggested Stan Winston take over and direct because they were friends and Stan had worked with him for years and had done the makeup effects on Ghosts when we started it and did all the visual effects. His company with Jim Cameron, Digital Domain, did all of that. They ended up doing that together and I went and did The Shining miniseries. So that's how that all worked out. And then Stan had the time of his life and he was so glad to be able to, to direct that. There's a handful of things that I shot that remain in it, but it conceptually changed. But Stephen King wrote the original story and script and then we made changes. I rewrote it and it became different things Michael wanted to do. And then it was reconceptualized when Stan Winston came on board because Michael wanted to play all those characters. He wanted to play the mayor and himself. And that changed. Otherwise, all of the approach and a lot of the visual effects, the approach to the house and all that stuff, I shot most of that. But then Stan did the bulk of the movie. <sighs> and then you say budget, it was just outlandish. Yeah, because it all came out of Michael's pocket once it stopped being part of the... Oh. Uh, yeah, so wow. it was a $15 million music video. Oh my wow. gosh. gosh. And 35 minutes, yeah. <laughs> There's a cut on YouTube of what I had shot that I just discovered like a year ago that is out there that's the everything that we shot before it stopped you can track it down the masters of horror anthology series by showtime started yeah. in 2005 and it started off as a dinner party you used to put together right yes what were the dinner parties all about how did you orchestrate it what did you guys talk about who went <laughs> well you know like i said horror directors directors don't work together and often We'd run into each other at festivals or conventions or whatever, and, and it would come up, you know, we should all have dinner together sometime. That'd be great. And this went on for a few years, and I thought, you know, nobody's going to do this. Nobody's going to organize this unless I do it. And so I took it on, and I spent about a week, and it was a real pain in the ass, trying to get people's schedules together. <laughs> <laughs> and finally did... There were 12 of us at the first dinner. It was Guillermo del Toro, John Landis, John Carpenter, Toby Hooper, Stuart Gordon, Bill Malone, Tom McLaughlin. I forget who all of the 12 were, but we had such a good time and it was just a lot of fun. There was a table next to us at this restaurant. They were celebrating somebody's birthday. And so we started singing happy birthday along with him. <laughs> and at the end of it, Guillermo del Toro stands up and, 
and says, the masters of horror wish you a very happy birthday. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where the name came from. (laughs) So So it was a social thing. We had such a good time that the next one I put together a month or two later, it took an hour to schedule them. But we did it over the course of a few years because we just had a lot of fun and people would start calling, hey, can I go to your dinners? And or somebody would, David Cronenberg would come to town and so we'd put together a dinner. And that. the last one we did was to salute Toby Hooper after he passed away. There were 35 horror directors there. Wow. So if a bomb fell, there would have never be another <laughs> horror, <laughs> genre, horror movie. What restaurants would you hold these in? Any, anyone in particular? Yeah, there, there was one in Sherman Oaks. Now I'm forgetting the name of it, but uh, we did it at the Hamburger Hamlet mostly, in, oh, yeah. uh, right on the line between West Hollywood and Beverly Hills on Sunset. And we did a couple of them most recently at a place in Studio City regular restaurants yeah it wasn't always talking horror movies either but that was what we had in common and it was great for people to meet each other and just it's like you know shoe salesmen getting together (laughs) (laughs) but our jobs were a little more sanguine my gosh can you imagine if any one of us walked in and saw that table this is so cool oh my gosh well the good news and bad news is that most people don't recognize filmmakers especially horror filmmakers (laughs) we live in our own gutter yeah. We would. Proud. <laughs> Google gobble. Did those dinners turn into planning meetings for episodes of the show and everything? Is uh, that- basically, it was the launch pad because yeah. one of the things we would talk about is how things had changed and how long it had been for a lot of these filmmakers to have made movies the way they wanted to make. A lot of them started out as independent filmmakers like Toby and Wes Craven and Carpenter and all and then ended up at studios where their originality was not encouraged. So we talked about how interesting and great it would be to be masters of our own universes. I put together the concept of doing a one-hour anthology show where each one was a self-contained movie where we would encourage each of these filmmakers to do it in their own voice, to do what they wanted the way they wanted. And that really came from the Amazing Stories experience. And what made that show not successful is what worked for Masters of Horror because every one of these guys got to tell a story their way. The trade-off was no money and no time, but (laughs) you can do something without restrictions. So part of the deal when we pitched it to three different companies the first week was, we'll do it for this cost and in this manner, but you have to stay out of the way. You have to let them do it. Otherwise, there is no reason for them to want to do an episode of a TV show. And so that's what we did. Well, the first company we went to said, how much and when can you start? Oh. I wish that would happen again. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very rare thing. That's yeah, a good feeling. Yes. And almost as rare as being able to do a television series where there is no creative interference. It was a remarkable time. We get our crew together and we do haunts and stuff. Do you like doing like Universal and Knots? And- you know, I've done it. I really hate when people jump in front of me and scare me. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure, right? Yes. <laughs> but, you know, the boo part is not the horror part that I like. Sure. Um, yeah, I haven't been to them in a few years now. What I loved about the one at Universal was... Clive Barker was involved in designing one. Rob Zombie was involved Mm -hmm. in designing one. And they weren't just franchises off of their movies, but they were actually these people creating something special on their own terms. It's become a lot more franchisable. And my least favorite thing about the world of horror movies today is the franchise. 
that you want to go for the broadest possible audience and then you want to hit them again and again and again in the same way. It's become more product than entertaining experience. Can I just point out that you directed Psycho 4? Yes. And Critters 2. Fly too. And I did the shining. So Stephen King's it. favorite version right. of the shining. We'll well, add that. Oh, I have a question about that actually. Maybe you don't know the answer to this, but I, I don't know mind. if you've seen the documentary Room Two Thirty Seven. Of course yeah. I have. I had a feeling. So there's a story in there well, about with the director, by the way. We're at the Stanley Hotel, which oh, yeah? is where King got the idea for the shining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It takes place. And where we shot the miniseries. And they had a festival there, the Stanley Horror Festival. Yeah. And I was a guest and the director of Room 237 was a guest and we were on a panel together. Oh, nice. Yeah, oh, so. that's cool. So there's, anyway, you're So maybe question. you've already covered this because I'm sure you can anticipate my question. So in the film, one of the voices says that Stanley Kubrick made this huge, elaborate traffic jam and that the core of the traffic jam is a red VW bug that's has been smashed by a giant truck, I believe. Right. And they say that that's Kubrick's statement to King that I'm doing The Shining my way because the red VW bug was in your book. This isn't your book. But the red VW bug is in it. (laughs) (laughs) But they drive a yellow VW bug in the the open. Well, film and books are two different media. I would say that there is a lot of imagination going on in that documentary. (laughs) Having met a couple of the people who were in it (laughs) on that same panel was interesting. But even the director, Rodney Asher, isn't saying these people are people I believe. Of course not. It's just these people have very entertaining stories. I do not believe that that Kubrick intended that in any way. I don't think... Kubrick even thought much about King. You know, King had written a draft or two that Kubrick just basically ignored. Right. And it was a very personal book to King. And I think he was probably genuinely hurt by how the material was treated because a lot of the most emotional and personal elements of the book are not in the movie, which is why when they asked him after the success of The Stand, what he wanted to do next, he said, I want to do the shine. Oh yeah, he was already yeah. for it. That was his. Well, he that, knew when they asked him, it didn't even, bugging him that long. I don't think he'd been planning on doing oh. remake of it or anything, but I just think that it was an opportunity to tell it on film the way that it had been told in the book. And King, more than anybody, knows the difference between books and movies. Sure. And people say to him often, you know, oh look how they screwed up your book. And he said, they didn't screw up my book. It's right here. It hasn't changed. There's a movie that's different. The the book is just fine. The book is doing fine. It's it's very healthy. It's healthy, baby. In that universe, are you looking forward to, as far as new horror, are you looking forward to seeing Dr. Sleep? I am. am. I'm a big Mike Flanagan fan. Mm. Yes. He's awesome. You know, and having been a part of that story of those characters, and this is Danny grown up now. Right. Danny Torrance grown up. Yeah, I'm fascinated to see where it goes because the book is so much not a scary ghost story like The Shining was. It's very different. And I'm really eager to see what he and Mike have done together with this. I'm really interested in seeing what the stand is going to be with Josh Boone doing. That's right. Yeah, that's coming that back for too. years, it's going to be a 10 part series on CBS all access. Wow. 
So and the new it too. Well, it too. And it too. Yeah. 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 I'm eager to see that. You know, the first it was it made a lot of changes <laughs> from the book, but it still felt like King. You know, yeah. it still had the same feeling and essence and personality. And off of that, did you see the Castle Rock miniseries? I saw part of it. I didn't see the whole thing. I liked what I saw, but it also felt like it was trying too hard to be in the King universe. And it felt kind of schizophrenic to me. It definitely walks the line. Its heart was in the right place because mm-hmm. they really did that thing that we were talking about earlier of making you fall in love with these characters yeah. and then take those characters into extreme places. And how great to have Sp- Sissy Spacek. Yeah, I know. Uh, you know, her first big movie and his first big movie were both Carrie. I was secretly That's hoping right. that it might be grown up Carrie. Yeah, I but know. But no such luck. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> so close, though. So close. Yeah. Are there any new horror movies that have really impressed you that you could recommend to us? I'm always well, looking for new stuff. Yeah, uh, nothing that you haven't seen by now, I'm sure. Wow. You know, uh, when you get Oscar fodder like Get Out, that's pretty exciting for mm-hmm. the genre. We haven't had one since 1990 with yeah. Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Yeah. I loved Hereditary. I love Revenge, Coralie Fargia's uh, rape revenge thriller. Mm-hmm. Right. I go to festivals around the world a lot and I see a lot of things from different countries and the like, but uh, off the top of my head, nothing really recent that you wouldn't know about. A couple of years ago, there was the autopsy of Jane Doe I thought was really terrific. Yeah, that was good. There's, there's really good stuff out I there. I hear that's good. There's one for you. <laughs> <laughs> but if you haven't seen Revenge too, that's really good. Yeah, that's and good. Beautiful filmmaking. It's intense and it gets ridiculous, but in a good way. So you've been to all these international film festivals how do these international audiences react or perceive the american horror films because we see them in a certain light we'll look at the slasher subgenre and be like ah it's another teen slasher horror what is the international audience how do they see these well what's fascinating uh, there's a big appetite for horror all around the world you don't get western festivals in lithuania right you know but you do get horror festivals or anywhere even in the u.s you don't have conventions dedicated to comedies or romantic comedies right. or drama it's an interesting it's a good point but horror is universal but the big difference outside of the u.s is that horror is for grown-ups It's not aimed at teenagers Mm -hmm. and not all about teenagers. So it is more respectable in that way. But because of the many platforms available to people now, it doesn't have to go on network TV or in cinemas. Independent horror in the U.S. has grown up a lot in a lot of ways as well. There's still plenty of slasher movies because that's the easiest way to make a horror movie. You don't need much ingenuity. You can say it's a tribute to 80s slasher movies. To me, that's kind of the nadir of horror cinema was 80s slasher movies. <laughs> but yeah, around the world, you bring up a very interesting point is that it's not seen that way in most other countries. It is a valid cinematic expression there. And it's not just the gutter as it's treated here. You know, now the studios love horror, but they love franchise horror. They love right. easy horror. They right. love teen oriented horror. And You know, I've got gray hair. That's not my favorite kind of stories to be told. I've kind of seen enough. The first Friday the 13th had a trailer and basically the trailer was one. They'd show one kill. Two. They show two (laughs) kills. They literally show 13 kills in the trailer with a big number of one through 13. That's what the movie is. 
And it was great for Friday the 13th, but that same formula has become emblematic of what American horror is represented by. And it's kind of sad because there's so much other stuff out there that is really fantastic and imaginative and inventive and emotionally based, like hereditary. Right. That's something you wouldn't normally get. Well, you didn't get it from a studio. You got it from A24, you know. Yeah. yeah, and like it follows. I it follows again. Yeah, yeah. the independent mm-hmm. stuff is really interesting. Yeah. It's funny. It reminds me back. You talk about Black Cat and the Hayes Code. Yes, is that horror then was sort of this place where you could explore deeper themes under the genre cloak. Good point. Yeah, it was. And in in the thirties, you know, Frankenstein and Dracula were big studio movies. Mm-hmm. They weren't gutter movies. They were the big productions that made Universal's bones. You know, they really... (laughs) 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 It was a big deal, and they were highly respected, and that went back to the silent days. Phantom of the Opera was Mm -hmm. a massive... uh, And Hunchback of Notre Dame, those were massive productions on the Universal lot that made the studio's success. So... It was really, well, in the 60s, horror was for kids. In the 50s, you know, right. ray guns and space monsters and <laughs> right. giant beetles and things like that. But in the 70s, it got gritty and it got real. And even on the studio level in 74, The Exorcist became a sensation. And that was a horror movie for grown-ups. You didn't have much of that in the U.S. and it kind of went back that way in the 80s and stayed that way for a long time. <clears throat> Around the time you also had Wes Craven uh, coming out with The Last House on the Left. And, yeah, uh, yeah. It was like that era, that the time right after or during uh, the Vietnam War. Yes. So it's like some of that was just, these, these movies were formed on that, on what you were seeing on the nightly news. Well, it reflects our society and it, it always has been a really potent mirror for that, even unintended. I don't think Toby Hooper sat down and thought about the Vietnam War when he was making Texas Chainsaw, but it's represented there. You can't avoid it. And the same thing with racial tension and and the like in Night of the Living Dead when George Romero did that in 1968. I don't think he was setting out to make a civil rights statement, but just hiring Ken Jones. Ken Dwayne Jones. Dwayne Jones. Sorry. Dwayne Jones. Yeah. Ken Foree. Right. (laughs) For the lead in that, he says it was, he was the best actor to read for the part. But it made a huge statement in 1968. And I don't know if you saw Horror Noir, the documentary about black horror cinema. It's beautifully done. And there's a perspective in that that makes it really, makes you realize how important it was in its time. And if you haven't seen that documentary, I highly recommend it. I want to see it. It's really good. good. Yeah, Yeah, I loved it. I was wondering as uh, a filmmaker, as a creator, is there something in right now that you're thinking of that you've been wanting to do some type of genre that you've been well we have a new movie coming out this summer called nightmare cinema and it's an anthology movie done with the same philosophy of masters of horror but in an international way and as a feature film it's five stories from five directors joe dante and i are the two americans then there's ryuhei kitamura from japan alejandro Bruges from cuba and um david slade from the uk And each of them tells it their way. And mine is, I'm kind of into emo horror, as we've been talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Like riding the bullet was something. And and maybe it came from working with King or maybe it came from losing people close to me. But the idea of making horror personal, 
there's a ghost story that I did for Nightmare Cinema called Dead that I'd been trying to make as a feature for a while, and it got scrunched down into 25 minutes out of this two-hour movie. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that's something. I've been writing novels. I just finished a novel called Free that um, turns supernatural after two-thirds of the bulk of it before you realize, oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's not what yeah, I expected. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Have um, you had so, any yeah. paranormal experiences that make you want to write? I would love to say yes. Okay. I would, I would love, love for love you to, to say yes. Too. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I have not. And I remain skeptical. I would love the experience. So not to be, but I'm kind of grounded in that regard. Mm-hmm. Witchcraft and ghosts, things like that. I want to see it. I don't disbelieve people who've had those experiences, but I haven't had them. So have yeah. you seen Demon House? <laughs> about that? Demon House, yeah, LLC. <laughs> Everybody says it's really scary and we're too scared to watch it. But... Oh, go for it. <laughs> Send the kids to bed. <laughs> yeah. I was kind of surprised because you, you, you were on the set for Poltergeist, right? I was, yeah. I mean, there were some real bones there, right? There were real bones there, but it was on the studio lot. You don't feel much, uh, many spirits on a studio lot. <laughs> <laughs> evil spirits, yes, but not of that. <laughs> Different kind of evil. <laughs> yes, yeah. Nightmare Cinema, is it going to be a theatrical release? Yes. or we're, yeah. Oh, great. That's... Yeah, not wide theatrical, but it will be out in theaters in like 15 cities in the U.S. and then all around the world. That's awesome. And uh, then it will be, you know, VOD and special edition Blu-ray. And then however many months afterwards, it'll be streaming on Shudder. That's but see it in the theater, please. It's oh. called Nightmare Cinema. Yeah, exactly. No yeah. It takes place in, the wraparounds take place in a movie theater. Oh, oh cool. cool. In the uh, Rialto. That's oh, great. Oh, nice. And uh, Mickey Rourke is the projectionist who's kind of our crypt keeper. Oh, <laughs> man. Oh, I love it already. So, yeah, yeah I, I'm very proud of what we all did. And these guys just kicked its ass. You know, really wonderful writers and directors and it was really like making Masters of Horror again. Oh, that's great. I apologize if I missed it, but was there a day or do we know when it's coming out? It'll exactly? be out in the summer. Oh, it's summer. It'll okay. be June or July. Oh, awesome. Great. I'm looking forward so, to that. They're about on the verge of locking that in. I know, you, you know you're doing the podcast and everything. Is there anybody out there that you've loved to talk? I mean, you've talked to everybody under the sun. Is there anybody that you'd love to talk to you haven't had the opportunity to talk to yet? Well, who are still here? <laughs> We never got to do George Romero on the podcast, Mm. and I would love to have had him. One of the great things about my job, my jobs these days, since I do the podcast as well, is getting to meet people who I admire. But from as far back as high school, like I said, interviewing Rod Serling and interviewing Ray Bradbury and people like that when I was in high school. So I've always been curious and always kind of sought these people out in ways that were legitimate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Either as filmmakers and as a producer to direct films that they're writing or they're writing or directing and to work with together or to interview them. You know, I had Spielberg on my Z Channel show and that later on turned into we work together a lot. I've met most of my heroes. I never met him, but I even got to see Hitchcock on the lot a few times when I was doing publicity at Universal. So I've had a very lucky, I kind of call myself the Zelig of horror because you can go to any historical place during my lifetime of horror 
and I'm the little out of focus <laughs> face <laughs> way back in the corner of the picture of the famous people, you know, that somehow I've, I've been lucky enough to leave footprints in the sands of a lot of historic stuff in the genre. Mick, thank you so much, thank man, you. for being oh, here. So yeah, thanks really for having It was a blast. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Oh, God, mother. Blood. Blood. Oh, dude. Tubular. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 38. Follow Mick Garris at PostmortemGram on Insta and at PostmortemMG on Twitter. Look out for his film Nightmare Cinema out this summer and check out his incredible podcast, Postmortem, everywhere you get podcasts. Till next time, Trevor the Boo Crew saying, see you on the other side. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shand, Austin Wilkins, and Rachel Tahada. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation. Bye.